0: The Jodcast, attempting to make aliens cooler than dinosaurs, with Claire Bretherton, Ian Morrison, Josh Hayes, Laura Dreesen, Adam Averson, Emma Alexander and Tom Sprague. The Jodcast, February 2018 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josh and joining me in the studio are Adam and Laura. Hello. Adam hey. has been with us before, but Laura is new, so do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do here?
1: Sure, so I'm from Down Under just in case you can't immediately tell by my accent. I'm a PhD student here at the University of Manchester, and I'm working on fast radio bursts with the brand new Meerkat Telescope in South Africa.
2: So I know what Meerkat is, but could you let us, the listeners know what the Meerkat Telescope is?
1: Yeah, sure. So Meerkat means more Karoo Array Telescope. So Mia is more in Afrikaans. So it started out as the Karoo Array Telescope, but then as they added dishes to this telescope, they made it the more telescope. So it's actually 64 radio dishes in the desert in South Africa, and each dish has a diameter of 13 and a half meters. So they're big dishes and there's 64 of them. So this is kind of the start to the square kilometer array, which is going to be the biggest telescope in the world. And the project that I'm on is called MIR TRAP, which means more transients and pulsars. So what we're looking for is any transient radio source. That means something that just flashes and goes away, or something that flashes constantly, or every now and then, just something that's really short on less than second time scales, and in the radio. And the Meer Trap observations are commensal, so that means that while anybody is using the telescope, we're kind of piggybacking on their observations. We're looking at the same time. Not that they'll notice that we're even there. But <laughs> they're, so they're, you're not stood over
2: yes. their shoulder, just <laughs> looming over them.
1: Yes, we definitely do that. Um, <laughs> So we're looking all the time. Whenever anybody's looking, that has huge advantages. Like Some people go back to the same field, so that means we can check if, say, we see one flash, we can see if it happens again.
0: Okay, I think we're going to actually be talking a little bit more about FRBs and what they are later, so we we will hold out on that for now. In the show this time, Tom Scragg interviews Robert Minchin about how to get your telescope to survive a hurricane, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the February night sky. But first, before all that, here's Emma with this month's news.
3: In the news this month, the extreme magneto-ionic environment associated with the source of the repeating fast radio burst, exposed subsurface ice sheets in the Martian mid-latitudes, and the first definitive interstellar detection of benzonitrile. So, first up in the news this month, things that go bump in the night. Well, by bump I mean a transient radio pulse, and by night I mean at any time and anywhere in the sky. First discovered in 2007, fast radio bursts, or FRBs, are bright radio pulses that last only a few milliseconds. The bursts are highly dispersed in frequency, implying that they are extragalactic in origin, but the exact circumstances of their origins remains uncertain. FRB 121102, possibly the most well-known FRB as it is the only one observed so far to repeat, has been the subject of a recent study published last month in Nature, Observations of this repeating FRB taken with the Arecibo and Greenbank radio telescopes were found to show almost 100% linearly polarised emission. The study looked at Faraday rotation of the polarised emission, which is the phenomena describing the rotation of a polarised wave due to the presence of a magnetic field. Faraday rotation measures quantify this rotation of polarisation angle, and are indicative of the strength of magnetic fields and the electron density along the path of the emission. The rotation measures of the repeating FRB bursts were found to be of the order 10 to the 5 radians per metre squared. To put this into context, such large rotation measures have only previously been seen in the vicinities of massive black holes, ones with masses greater than 10,000 times that of the Sun, and indicate the presence of extremely strong magnetic fields. The observations by the two telescopes were taken of bursts six months apart, allowing for variability in the source to be examined. The dispersion measure, which quantifies the differing arrival times of the signal for different observation frequencies, was found not to change. and This means that the electron density along the line of sight to the burst hasn't changed significantly. However, there was around a 10% difference in the rotation measures, and because changing electron density was able to be ruled out through the dispersion measure, this means that the magnetic field had changed. So not only is the environment around this FRB likely to be highly magnetised, it is also likely to be constantly evolving and changing. The fact that this source is also responsible for the shortest FRB burst so seen so far implies that its source is small, astronomically speaking, at around 10 kilometers. And this would be consistent with it being the size of a neutron star. The study concludes that the observations are consistent with the extreme magneto-ionic environment of a low luminosity accreting massive black hole with the burst originating from a neutron star within that environment. It could also be due to a young magnetar in a supernova remnant, or a pulsar wind nebula. With this discovery, we are hopefully one step closer to understanding these mysterious transient radio phenomena. I chatted to Daniele McKilly, one of the lead authors of the paper, who summarised the main findings of the study.
4: Fast radio bursts are one of the most interesting astronomical sources detected in the last uh, years. In this interview I will talk about uh, my recent publication on the only fast radio burst that repeats that permitted us to study the environment of the source for the first time. In this study we studied for the first time the environment of a fast radio burst finding surprising um, extreme conditions around the source.
3: And you can hear more from Danielli in a longer interview that will appear in a later episode. Next up, we look a bit closer to home, within our own solar system, in fact. A study published in the journal Science details observations by the high-resolution imaging science experiment camera on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Researchers found thick, exposed deposits of ice beneath Mars' surface in faces of eroding slopes at eight sites. These icy deposits of relatively pure water ice can give us insights into the history of the Martian climate, in addition to being more accessible to potential future exploratory missions to Mars. It has been known for some time that shallow ground ice existed on the surface of Mars, and that there are larger icy deposits at its poles. But these newly found thick underground sheets are different to what has been seen before, and offer a new insight into our planetary neighbour. And finally, also appearing in the Journal Science, the detection of benzonitrile in the interstellar medium. For decades, astronomers have been puzzling over the existence of faintly glowing infrared light that is observed throughout the universe. It was thought that this glow was due to a class of molecules called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, where here aromatic refers to the molecule's ring-like shape. However, until now, there was no evidence that these molecules existed in space. The study used data from the Green Bank telescope to detect telltale signs of benzonitrile, a chemical precursor to polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Benzonitrile's unique structure gives it a distinct radio signature, which the astronomers found in observations of the Taurus Molecular Cloud, which is a star forming nebula located about 430 light years from Earth. This cold molecular cloud wouldn't be the first place you'd think to look for benzonitrile, however, as it is thought to form around hot, evolved stars. Its abundance was also four times that what would be expected from chemical models, so there is still much more to learn about these mysterious molecules. That's it for the news this month, back to the studio.
2: Thanks for that, Emma. And now Tom Scragg interviews Robert Minchin about how to get your telescope to survive a hurricane.
5: Hello, everyone, I'm Tom Scragg, and I'm here today with Dr. Robert Minchin from Arecibo Observatory. So, welcome.
6: Thank you, Tom. It's great being here with you today.
5: Okay, I understand you've been to Manchester before and worked at projects at Jodrell Bank?
6: Uh, Yes, I have. I visited the city centre of Manchester here for a couple of meetings, the IAU meeting back in, who was it, 2000, when I was a postgrad in Cardiff. And then I came over here when I was in Arecibo for the uh, 50th anniversary of Jodrell Bank meeting. Also used the Lovell telescope out at Jodrell Bank quite extensively for neutral hydrogen surveys for galaxies, uh, particularly when I was based down in Cardiff.
5: Did you actually get to come and use the telescope as, in the sense of being here and taking the data on site? Or is it, please go and look at this and then give me all the data when, you, when you've when you done it?
6: Well, this was definitely the first of those. We were up here, we actually brought some equipment over from Australia where there was a parallel project going on at the Park Telescope in Uh, New South Wales, and we installed equipment at Jodrell Bank. We worked out how to control the telescope or interfacing our equipment, our control system, which had come from Parks, with the Jodrell Bank drive system. Well, when I say we, that was mainly done by Christine Jordan out at Jodrell. And uh, we drove the telescope. We sat on site, uh, either staying in the barracks out there, for want of a better word for the place where for visiting astronomers stay or in local b and sometimes well known for being very cold in the middle of winter i actually at one point wandering back it was it must have been about this time of year and jodrell was covered in snow and i walked back across from the from a telescope to the quarters in the middle of the night it must have been about midnight put my key in the lock and it sheared off oh dear. and so i had to find the security guard Uh, It was about zero degrees, snow on the ground. And fortunately, he was able to get some pliers and work the key out of the lock and issue me with a a replacement key there and then in the middle of the night. Otherwise, I guess I'd have been sleeping in the control room or something.
5: You'd think it'd be a long time ago, but that must only be, what, 2000? That'd have been about 2000-ish, yeah. Those were the days when astronomers used to be on site. And I guess Jodrell Bank is... Not as remote as some sites, as no, some no. observatories.
6: No, certainly not. I mean, we used to have people flying down to Arecibo to use the telescope there quite regularly. The first time I used Arecibo, I flew out there for two nights of observing and then flew back again. And uh, they were just starting up then with what is now the standard observing mode of remote observing. And we hit a wonderful problem with the Funding Council at the time. The Funding Council, the, uh, which was P Park at that point was willing to pay through the uh, funding to go to telescopes to fly someone out to Arecibo but they were not willing to pay for the phone call to do the remote observing and the (laughs) university needed a grant line to charge the phone call to and eventually it was decided this could be charged to departmental overhead because it was a single phone call and they asked P Park and P Park came back with the answer no, that is not covered as part of use it, the grants for using telescopes. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, Absolutely amazing. The politics and the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy behind there. this.
5: So I guess these days it's it's
6: mm. all done remotely? These days it was all done remotely until the hurricane came through. Right. So the problem we've had now, as many of your listeners may be aware, back in September, Puerto Rico was hit by Hurricane Maria. This came through the island caused a huge amount of destruction and one of the things that was taken out was the phone lines and the internet connection to the observatory we actually lost all power as well at the observatory in terms of the mains power the commercial power to the outside world the observatory has its own generators though so Mm -hmm. we've been running on diesel generators until about a, a week or two back we were running on those diesel generators in terms of the phone lines, those were down, the internet connection was down. We got managed to get, after a couple of days, they'd sent a satellite phone down, which had got as far as San Juan, the major city in Puerto Rico, uh, where one of our staff picked it up and brought it to the observatory. And so within a week of the observatory, we were back communicating, but only via satellite phone. Now, the interesting thing about satellite phones, of course, is they work at the radio frequencies. In fact, I think this one is in... Elban quite close to where we study the pulsars and my work in the hydrogen line. This means it does not work inside our shielded buildings. (laughs) (laughs) And so to use this satellite phone, you had to go and stand outside, normally with a large umbrella, because in Puerto Rico it's either very, very sunny and you're getting sunburnt, or it's having a tropical downpour, sometimes both during the course of a single phone call. All (laughs) right. So it took a while. Within, I think it was nine days after the hurricane came through, we actually were first able to move the telescope, move the telescope enough to actually do track a source, make a detection of a pulsar. We didn't go back straight away to doing full observations, though, partly because, as I say, we were running entirely on diesel power. The, The government kept telling us it wasn't in short supply, the problem was the distribution, but it doesn't matter if it's in short supply, not in short supply at the docks, if it's in short supply where you actually need it. So the distribution was very rightly prioritizing places like hospitals. And a radio observatory comes somewhere down the list. And so we weren't sure of our diesel supply and keeping the generator running. So we went into putting a telescope in, fixing it in position and doing a drift survey. We actually have a drift project that runs looking for pulsars just by parking the telescope and letting the Earth's rotation sweep it across the sky. And so then we only need to move it once a day and then we can turn the motors off and just leave the telescope parked there. And that obviously uses up less diesel than moving the telescope around, uh, tracking sources and things like we normally do. Okay. So we run in that mode for a bit over a month and then we slowly returned to doing our normal tracking observation mode after that. But, uh, and this is where it links through to the remote observing, the without the internet connection being reliable, we couldn't actually connect remote observers to connect through to the telescope and run it. So instead, they've been producing command scripts and sending them... We have a uh, low bandwidth internet connection,
3: and so we can get
6: them on during the times when that's working properly, and it's got better. Initially, it was working very slowly. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it would stop entirely. So they can send these command files, and our operators can then run those, and then they can... Call our cell phones from their satellite phones when things go wrong. I, mean, I think we all forget how,
5: maybe not fragile, but how the links are in some of the, the technology that we use. I mean, mm-hmm. a simple, presumably copper wire running down the hill uh, to the, the local telephone exchange takes an, a major international facility offline um, yeah. or into a very reduced mode of operation
6: for a long time they got the telephone connection back but not the internet connection a few weeks back. And before that, we set up a radio link internet connection, similar to what was used for Merlin back in the old days right. out of Jodrell. Slightly ironically, this is a C-band link in one of our observing bands. So it's actually hidden. There's a number of hills. The site is up in the, in the hills. And so it's actually, the transmitter isn't pointing over the telescope. It's actually on the far side of a hill from the telescope we don't seem to cause major interference not saturating the receiver and it's in the the uh, c-band wi-fi bands which are not an area we can observe anyway because of the bad interference from home domestic wi-fis most of the time so there are a
5: lot of homes around the telescope there are
6: quite a few homes and houses around there and a number of people actually use these c-band links because the uh the cable television which uh, doesn't come all the way up the mountains so up in the mountains where we are people who've got internet are often actually using c-band microwave links for right. their internet but this is a, a 50 megabyte per second link as opposed to the sort of 100 gigabyte or whatever it is we can have so, uh, you feel the effect there. yeah absolutely and so people can upload their files the major or oh, challenges that we haven't able to do the remote observing as i said but also getting data off-site. We're used to just transferring data over the internet in this day and age. And of course, you know, big projects like a Pulsar observing can, call, can uh, take data, you know, sort of 10 nanosecond intervals yes. and huge amounts of data. And so how do we get this off-site? We've actually gone back to people sending us disks by FedEx. We're transferring data onto those disks and putting them back into FedEx and sending them off to people.
5: That again, a very old-fashioned,
6: very old-fashioned. What well, seems yeah, an so.
5: old-fashioned way of doing it now, mm. but it's probably five years ago, ten years ago, at the most, since mm. it was uh, superseded.
6: Yeah, one of the issues, of course, is we now have new backends which take more data, and you know, it used to be the computing power wasn't there to produce this amount of data, and all that computing power is still there, just the internet connectivity is gone. So, <laughs> in the old days, when we had lower bandwidths and we used to ship things by, often tape in those days, we would have had much less data because the computers just couldn't generate that much data. Mm, yep. If you wanted 10 nanosecond data, you had a small bandwidth. And now we've got 10 nanoseconds over 800 megahertz bandwidth or something. And it's yeah. this huge quantity of data.
5: Yeah, I mean, as you go down the, the scale, um, if, as you get smaller and smaller intervals, mm. it means more data. The converse is, of course, you're getting better resolution, or oh, final resolution, yeah. so that's why it does it, but yes, we're talking mm. orders of magnitude of yeah. increases in data. You mentioned earlier about um, tracking sources. Now, is a, a fixed bowl mm-hmm. in a valley. Yep. So the, the tracking of a source is done by adjusting the receiver, if, so, if I get this right.
6: So yes, the dish itself is a spherical dish. And the reason it's spherical is that means when you look at it, you're always seeing the same curvature. And there's two different ways you can track something on a spherical dish, or two different optical methods you can use. Really, uh, they all rely on moving uh, the focus cabin around. And so we have two focus cabins on the telescope, one on each side. If you think of what our receiver looks like, with sort of a big arc, and there's things on both sides of that arc. And that arc goes out from, goes essentially from zero to 20 degrees on each side. And so we can actually track things down, or we can go to a zenith angle, as we call it, uh, of 20 degrees, essentially down to an elevation of 70 degrees. And so we can track things, most sources we can track for a couple of hours. Now, the two focus cabins we have, one has a big long line feed hanging off it. The, uh, a spherical bowl, Unlike uh, the normal parabolic dish you have on almost every other telescope, which has a single focus point, a spherical dish has a line of focus. And a line feed is a a way of sampling that and phasing everything up mechanically. In some ways, it's an analogue phased array feed and brings everything up in phase to a receiver at the focus cabin. The other one we (coughs) have is the Gregorian Dome. That was put up in the 1990s as part of a major upgrade at Arecibo. And that uses secondary and tertiary reflectors, uh, which have been shaped very carefully calculated by computers, to actually create a point focus, which we can then move different receivers onto. And that's where we get the wide bandwidths that we can right. use for yep. the pulsar science, particularly.
5: Again, the wider the bandwidth, the more data, but the more information mm. you can glean from, the, from what you're observing. So... Is Arecibo the only telescope in the world with that particular design, with a movable observing cabin?
6: So it's the only one for many years. The FAST telescope in China has a similar design. They're moving their cabin around, but also they haven't gone for this optical system that we have of either having a line feed or reflectors. They actually deform their primary dish away from being spherical and Hmm. form a parabola pointing at the point on the sky which they want and so in some ways they are steering a parabola and steering a focus cabin with it. So it's sort of a hybrid of what Arecibo does and what other telescopes do which uh, is something that you couldn't really retrofit to Arecibo but it's a certainly challenging engineering concept and uh, of course at the moment they are working through the challenges of getting it commissioned.
5: There are people from Manchester involved as well. So, yeah, it's it's certainly a fascinating concept. But just to to push that a little bit further then. So most of the the, the big telescopes in the world, uh, most of the big radio telescopes, uh, for that matter, are are stirrable dishes. Mm -hmm. So you have a huge chunk of metal that you move around. sounds easier to move a focus point around, to to point at different um, um, sections of the sky... But obviously, if it's hundreds are done one way and only one or maybe two now are done with a movable cabin, there's, there's um, trade-offs there that are not not obvious or not that we, I don't know about anyway.
6: Well, one of the trade-offs, obviously, is about how far down from the zenith you can go. With Arecibo, we can go about 20 degrees. Fast goes further, but still doesn't get down to the horizon. Uh, The Lovell Telescope, though, you can point out the horizon. We did discover when I was using it, if you point out the horizon over Manchester, you get an awful lot of RFI and not an awful lot of astronomical (laughs) signal. Uh, Apparently, there's a lot of people living in Manchester doing a lot of things that cause RFI. But uh, you can actually (laughs) actually point the Lovell Telescope or the Green Bank Telescope uh, right down to the horizon. And so cover everything you can see with your eyes, you can see with the Lovell Telescope. You can see with the Green Bank Telescope. Okay. Whereas with Arecibo, we can only point in that cone, which sweeps out about a, a third of the sky, but that's substantially less sky than the other telescopes. The other trade-off, though, obviously, is you can make a much bigger dish if you don't need to mm. move it. Yeah. And so there is this balance between do you want steerability, do you want sensitivity? And, of course... If you want both, you need to move to some, to probably a large number of dishes rather than a big single dish, which is where you get a design like the square kilometre array, which will hopefully be coming online in the future. And yes, I know Manchester's very involved in that.
5: Yes, because uh, we host the headquarters, mm-hmm. and uh, we have lots of teams and postdocs and students working on uh, applications for the SKA. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, it always seems to be about 10 years away is the comment I've heard, but <laughs> that's probably the case with a lot of big projects, yeah, certainly international projects. Mm. Um, You mentioned Cardiff before, so you did a, a PhD at Cardiff. How did you end up at Arecibo?
6: So I did a PhD in Cardiff and a postdoc position there after I finished my PhD. I was actually working on a neutral hydrogen survey Uh, down in the Southern Hemisphere with parks, as I mentioned before. Uh, That was a project Cardiff was involved in through uh, Professor Mike Disney, who was my PhD supervisor. And I also became involved in a neutral hydrogen survey at Jotterall Bank at the same time. And just at that time, Arecibo was just installing uh, what we call a multi-beam receiver. This was the receivers we'd used for these surveys. Down in the Southern Hemisphere, we had a 13-pixel receiver, which... To people used to digital cameras, sounds like a very small number, but if in radio astronomy, for many years, one pixel was all you got, mm-hmm. and you just liked it. We had a four-pixel receiver on the Lovell Telescope, and Arecibo was building a seven-pixel receiver, or the Australians were building for Arecibo, in fact, a seven-pixel receiver called the uh, Arecibo L-band feed array, or more commonly known as Alpha, from its initials. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. And so they were starting up a whole bunch of H1 surveys... A neutral hydrogen service that is and that was the field I worked in. So I applied to go there for a postdoc uh, working on these surveys and they said sure we'll have you and so I went over there essentially to search for galaxies looking instead of for their stars looking for their gas and uh, I ended up still there. <laughs> and this is what 12 years later? Uh, 12 years yes it was 2005 I went there so my postdoc finished 2008 this turned out to be a really bad time on the job market. Although I applied places, I actually ended up staying at Arecibo. They were very happy for me to stay on there. I'd originally, as I said, planned to be there for a three-year postdoc and then move off, but that didn't work out. So I mm-hmm. stayed there. And for the last couple of years, I've been group lead for radio astronomy there. So uh, Enjoying it still, I hope. Enjoying it. It's been challenging the last few months with the hurricane coming through. and Yes. Um, there's been a lot of work. Getting back online, getting contacting the observers, letting them know about things, organising for all these scripts to be sent, trying to troubleshoot problems with the scripts and problems with the, trying to work out how to fix problems with the telescope.
5: Okay I mean, obviously, it disrupts a lot of uh, major um, international programmes, mm. um, with the telescope being unavailable, and then uh, the disruption thereafter. So it must be quite a challenge trying
6: to manage all of that. Yeah, so some of the disruption, there's pulsar monitoring programs, which normally want to come on every few months. And I think uh, people have managed to be involved in some of these, but major ones like the Nanograv, the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, normally observe fairly regularly, and they were unable to do so for a couple of months. One advantage of pulsars, of course, is that if you can detect it, you can time it. And so we don't need to, didn't need to get the absolute calibration of the telescope back before we could start doing pulsar science again, because for almost all pulsar science, you're interested in seeing the pulse and timing it rather than measuring how big that pulse is. Yes. And this obviously means we could go and do that as soon as we could get the telescope back and in motion. So essentially almost as soon as we could get that diesel supply. And uh, one of the other challenges... We have is the telescope platform is pulled down into, into its position, into the focus position, by cables going down from the corners of the big triangle, if you... Uh, Our see has this triangle which the things sit underneath, and the corners have lines going down under the dish to concrete blocks on the ground. And the motors on those to pull the telescope down, keep it in the focus position. OK. And that underneath area got flooded, and we lost the, some, some of the control cables to those uh, tie-downs, as we call them. So keeping the telescope in focus became challenging. We actually... uh, I ended up uh, a week after the hurricane, strapping a kayak to the roof of my car, (laughs) driving up the mountain with a kayak on the car, with everyone along the road looking at me with mouths agape saying, what on earth is this crazy person up to? Mm -hmm. Driving a kayak around after the hurricane. And actually it was brought up there so they could go underneath the telescope into a flood of a flooded valley underneath and wow. they paddled the kayak around taking electronic equipment in the kayak to the uh the bottoms of the tie downs so they could refit bits down there and so it wasn't completely crazy
5: obviously a good reason for doing it but mm. well wow. i mean the, the, the flooding must have been quite severe and again that's just Due to the storm that
6: came through? That was due to the hurricane and then we got... We often get some flooding this time of year, but we have a pump under the dish that runs and pumps it out. Unfortunately, after the hurricane, the pump itself was submerged and so we couldn't turn it on until the water dropped and that took over a month for the water to drop far enough. We had to wait for it to just drain naturally. We don't really know how much rain we got. The rain meters say um, something like almost a meter of rain fell. I think wow. the actual, uh, from the hurricane center of the, at NOAA, the American equivalent of the Met Office, they think it was probably about half that in our area, which is still a large amount of rain. Some meet, Apparently some rain meters, the rain meters work by having a little bucket which fills with water and tips, and they think the wind shook a lot of rain meters, so these we got these spurious readings of things tipping before they were full. That might be what happened to ours. I don't think anyone really knows. So those meeting, those maybe we just got really unlucky and did get that much rain. We actually don't know, but we certainly got an awful lot of rain, and it was deep enough to go kayaking under the dish. In
5: so that's an extraordinary picture. Mm. Wow. Okay. You mentioned your research was in the into the gas in galaxies, the the gas distribution. I assume. Um, so do you want to tell us? Can you tell us a little bit about that? and...
6: Yeah, so essentially, ever since my PhD, I've been involved in neutral hydrogen surveys. This is looking for the gas in the galaxies using the 21-centimetre line. In the past, we've used telescopes often to look for, look at the gas in galaxies that have been discovered optically. We just take a galaxy out of a catalogue, point the telescope at it and say, oh yes, the gas is rotating at this speed, it's got this much gas, and therefore we derive these properties. What I do is slightly different. We're normally doing what we call blind surveys, so we don't know in advance what we're going to see. We actually survey a whole area of sky using these multi-beam receivers, these multi-pixel receivers, and we find the sources. Uh, We make up a data cube of right ascension, declination, and as the third axis, the uh, velocity, which is the frequency of the 21-centimeter line, redshifted, and of course, in astronomy the velocity when you're working in extragalactic astronomy is a indication of the diff- distance because of the uh, Hubble Hubble's law of the expansion of the universe and so we can then use this to map where we see neutral hydrogen sources inside clusters we've seen with uh, Arecibo and in fact we saw with Jodrell some gas inside say the Virgo cluster it doesn't have optical galaxies associated with it there's no optical counterpart you wouldn't think of pointing a telescope there unless yeah, okay. uh, from just the optical. and But we found a number of sources, and we're still finding sources, which don't have optical counterparts. And for the most part, in somewhere like the Virgo cluster, we think this must be due to some kind of interaction going on in the cluster. And so we also have people working on simulating what's going on there. And once we've found them with something like Arecibo, we can then go to the VLA and say, we want to make a high-resolution image of this and see what's going on here. So uh, we actually had some observations with the VLA last year. Okay. I was meant to be working on them in the autumn. I didn't get round to it because we had a hurricane instead. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> but, uh, a distraction. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm hoping in the new year to get round to actually looking at that data and seeing what we see in terms of the H1 in these, whether it's whether they look like... They're just blobs of gas, whether they look like they're rotating, whether they look like they're spheres. So we don't know really what we'll find when we look at higher resolution, but uh, it'll be interesting to find out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, would this potentially be
5: a um, a component of dark matter that's not quite so dark anymore
6: because we can see it in one electromagnetic wavelength, but not others? In one sense it's dark matter and that is not luminous. When people originally were saying there seems to be more mass than we can account for in clusters and things, gas was certainly one of the things looked at. uh, Mm. In clusters, particularly the hot gas, rather than the uh, neutral hydrogen, which is after the gas has been taken out of the galaxies, which is probably what we're seeing, it gets heated in the cluster environment and becomes this hot X-ray gas that X-ray astronomers can see in the clusters. This doesn't account for, though, when... Things like WMAP and other mapping of the cosmic microwave background, I think, require the dark matter to be non-baryonic. So this is still baryonic matter. It's ordinary matter, mm. like we're made of. It's yep. the hydrogen essentially is the fuel that goes into the stars that then becomes the heavier elements that make us up. So the actual dark matter that we talk about in cosmology is non-baryonic. So it's not made of ordinary uh, protons and neutrons and electrons. It's Something weird and funky. Good description. <laughs> as accurate as any we've had. Uh, I don't know if we can say anything better than weird and funky when it comes to what the dark dot- matter particle might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something there. Quite yes. what, we don't know. At all, we don't know.
5: No. But uh, Okay. So, when you're detecting this uh, neutral hydrogen, are you looking at emission or absorption of... Um, um, light from behind,
6: for example? So normally we're looking for the neutral hydrogen line in emission. We actually see the gas in the galaxy emitting. Uh, every now and again we will see something against a distant radio source and we'll see it in absorption, but almost all of our sources are actually in emission. We do actually also sometimes look at absorption with Arecibo. We'll do projects where we're looking at uh, distant quasars to try and find uh, gas in them in absorption that's your main
5: project are there other areas that you're working on?
6: So that's my main project has been uh, that what we call the Arecibo Galaxy Environment Survey which has been ongoing essentially since I went there and um, that's most of what I do scientifically. Uh, I also have various other projects going on which I'm not the lead on I'm lead on that project I'm often the observer on other projects people will Take our SIBO time. Get our SIBO time, and I'll be involved in their project as the observer. Since I know the telescope, I can do the data reduction. Since I wrote some of the software for it, okay. And if uh, need to be, I can rewrite the software for it.
5: Okay. So as long as the as as well as the the people doing the theory mm. and um, requesting the observations mm. to find particular information, there's obviously a team of people that are involved in actually. Um, generating the data, making the observation not just pointing the telescope, but like you say, if you're rewriting software, then it's different analysis, different data storage, potentially different kinds of information that's being captured.
6: Yeah, and so a lot of our observers do their own observations, but uh, particularly in neutral hydrogen, it's often optical people who want the neutral hydrogen information and will often collaborate sometimes with me, sometimes with other Arecibo users who maybe aren't based at the telescope, sometimes in North America or Australia or wherever, they'll just find a local person who knows Arecibo and collaborate with them on doing the observations.
5: How do you get time on Arecibo? So, From a personal yeah. perspective, of course. Well, so, <laughs> yes,
6: thank you. Uh, Arecibo is an open skies instrument, and so anyone, anywhere can apply for time on it, uh, at least for time funded by the US federal government. And uh, all applications, we have two application deadlines a year. At the moment, those are in September and in March, which the September deadline was also fun this year. We managed to slip it in between two hurricanes. So the applications come in, they get sent out for review by referees. So essentially it's a peer review process. Referees give grades. We have referees who are specialists in pulsar astronomy, non-pulsar astronomy, And then for the other fields of a telescope, for planetary radar and for the uh, aeronomy, the atmospheric, space and atmospheric sciences, who are normally looking at the Earth's ionosphere. And we send out proposals to these referees. We get their comments back with uh, comments and, in fact, grades. Then we uh, schedule the ones which got the best grades.
5: Okay, seems reasonable. I, yeah,
6: Points mm-hmm. make prizes. And uh, as I say, there's anyone anywhere can apply for this time. There's no US only time on Arecibo.
5: Yeah, there was some news articles earlier in the year about um, Arecibo potentially being closed. Is that at least that scenario at least being pushed back or hopefully not going to happen?
6: So the NSF announced a few weeks back that having carried out a thorough review, they're going to be continuing science operations at Arecibo at a reduced funding level and seeking partners to do that Uh, what we don't know at the moment is who the partner is going to be and so or what funding model they might follow for that.
5: We didn't even get to talk about planetary radars and the ionospheric studies that you do at Arecibo maybe another time. Well thanks very much uh, for coming today
6: and and taking the time to talk to us. Thank you it's been great to be here again.
0: Thanks for that, Tom. Now we come to the... Well, my favourite part of the show where we fit in all the other bits. So this is the odds and ends. Adam, you are up
2: first this week. So what have you got for us? So you emailed on Friday or Thursday and said we should probably have an alien theme... And what I really wanted to talk about was a really great book I'm reading about Ziggy Stardust and David Bowie's character, but that's <laughs> not really astronomy. But I mean that we can uh, I have I have a tenuous, link. Okay. Have a tenuous <laughs> link because this is about life on Mars. So a team from McGill University in Canada have developed a low weight and importantly low cost instrument platform, as they call it, to detect and analyse microorganisms in extreme environments. And those extreme environments are akin to what you can find on Mars. So if you're looking for sort of extreme or you know, things that live in very inhospitable regions on Earth, you you have the problem of you have to take a sample and then you have to return it to the lab to see what's going on within your sample, which is sort of time consuming, costly and at risk of contamination when you're on Earth. If you want to try and do something similar from another planet, say Mars, it's even more costly, time consuming and contamination is way, way more probable the alternative to that is, is to do all your tests in situ, but that's usually costly because you have to log all your kit there. So what this team have done have developed this thing that they've called the life detection platform, which can take samples of soil, culture any microorganisms that are there, detect if there is activity, and then sequence the DNA and RNA of the sample. So the important thing about this detection platform that they made is it doesn't require a lot of power and it uses this modular miniaturized instruments thing so you can fit it nicely on a, a mission to another planet. So to test this, they've taken it to the high Arctic in Canada at 70-something degrees north, about 900 kilometres south of the North Pole. So that bit oh. of the top of Canada where it's just all islands. and Oh, uh, what, the bit that looks like it's trying to escape? <laughs> yes, exactly. So- <laughs> and they managed to successfully culture a sample of microorganisms that live in there and sequence their dna so this is just uh, oh, sweet. just been published in in the frontiers of microbiology led by ah. uh, dr jacqueline godile oh ah,
0: yes a journal that we all subscribe to
2: well I, it, <laughs> it's, it's lucky that this was flagged up on some other uh well some astronomy related things i've like, never <laughs> spotted it but now that they've proved that it works and it's sort of like a, a proofing concept then they suggest that they in the in the introduction to the paper that this could be fired off and, and used on Mars and Europa. And, and yeah, are and they,
0: have they got any particular missions in mind? Like, cause there's the Mars rover that's uh, going soon.
2: I didn't see that okay. I, I don't think if... I think it's probably, it's probably too late, too, too late yeah. in the day for that. But maybe in the next yeah. couple of missions. So, so yeah. that's really cool. So you can do all your tests in situ and just mm. beam results back rather than having to... That's really cool. I'd
0: I'd be really worried if I was a microbiologist actually, because it
2: sounds like they've just replaced me. (laughs)
0: uh, It doesn't have to just be used on Mars.
2: You just sit in your... Office in your in wherever you work and send a drone out with your Mm. kit, drop it, do all your experiments while you're nice and warm. None of this Yeah, this is is (laughs) don't go
1: there. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's extreme about Mars's environment? Because, like Matt Damon managed to live there for ages. (laughs) 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 So, what's the extreme part? Because you're talking about extremophiles and things like that. What's kind of the the main challenges for life, I suppose, on Mars?
2: So, they particularly focus on the sort of the the permafrost at the poles of Mars. So, it's Mm -hmm. very cold. You don't have atmosphere in in commas, comparable to ours. So lack of anything for the microbes to eat or survive on, you would imagine, but that's the the wonderful thing about extremophiles. They can do things that you wouldn't imagine. So part of what the group said when they were sort of publicising this work is that there hasn't been a direct life detection experiment sent to Mars since the 70s because of, you know, every... A cubic centimeter on one of these missions is super valuable like you got to ram it with as much equipment and experiments as you can and and, you know life has taken sort of a backseat to generally describing the surface of of the planet sort Mm. of on a geological manner
1: is there like a chance that we could accidentally send life over there with this stuff yes
2: probably
0: would we be able to
1: tell would we go oh whoops that's not mars life that's our life
0: if it's something we've documented, yeah, yes. Um, yeah. Like so, they when when they send these spaceships up, they put them in quarantine for, like I think it's like a month or something, and then they're all vacuum sealed and various stuff. But there's actually a um, a really interesting what if article. I think I mentioned these quite a lot on this show, but by the same guy that does Xkcd comics say what yeah. If, wait, where he kind of explores the what's the furthest anything has ever died from Earth? (laughs) And he's kind of just looked at the Voyager probe. Mm -hmm. There is probably some sort of microbe that's just sat in a crevice somewhere, just quietly breeding and then dying.
1: Also, what Um, I mean is, like, I don't know when the first Mars thing that we mm -hmm. sent there ever got there, but say we sent something over there then, and now it's worked out a way to live, right? Because bacteria and viruses and stuff are insanely hardy, and maybe it's changed so much that... We'd go, oh, look, life. But then we actually sent it over and it just changed. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, so, I mean, there are, there's again, there's a theory called panspermia, which is the scientific word for throwing a rock at a planet and having another rock from that planet fly off and then land on another planet. So there are theories that Mars used to be actually the better place for life to start compared to Earth. And because we're kind of really close, if Mars got hit by something big, it throws out a load of rubble. Clinging to it, screaming all the way, <laughs> is it, are some tiny microbes that land on Earth and go. Actually, it's fine here, and then carry on. So there are there are theories that actually life on Earth started as life on Mars.
2: So we are the Martians.
0: We are them. We are maybe the Martians. Sweet, thank you, Adam. So I, I was going to talk about. Tabby's star, which was the supposed alien megalith. I think Emma has actually mentioned this in the news. So, this morning, there was a paper that came out, sort of, just like a two-page thing, from Abraham Loeb, who is Chair of Astronomy at Harvard. And he's basically looking at an answer to the Fermi's paradox, which basically, for those that aren't aware, is if there are aliens, where are they? The universe is big, we should probably have bumped into them by now. And his answer is basically, they're about But they're not actually as technologically advanced as we thought. The idea is that up until this point, so with all of our SETI searches and things, we assume that alien civilizations are either as advanced or more advanced than us. But there's no reason for us to actually assume that. So we have all of these sci-fi shows where we have aliens flying about between stars on spaceships and things. But... We spent as a civilization. We spent about 500 years in like the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, and that worked as a civilization. There was a point where our mindset changed, and we became more technologically interested. Oh, electricity and sort of mm. oh, we've got radio and things like that now. But when we were living in a feudal society, there were many things that we now see as wrong. But there was nothing for those people there then that they were going. Oh, you know what we could do. Yeah, we uh, could build a spaceship. So his his argument is that actually maybe there are a lot of civilizations, but they never get to the point where they end up sending out all these radio beams because they don't they have just, the technology. Yeah, they they just level. they just they just chug along. Yeah, he he actually makes a, a reference to Origin by Dan Brown, in a, <laughs> <laughs> which which sort of threw me. It was um, perhaps we were very lucky to mature as a technological civilization in the spirit of the novel Origin by Dan Brown.
1: Could it just yeah. be, so when we're looking at stars, right, mm. the longer a star spends in a particular spot in its lifetime, the more likely we are to see that star. So if it just sort of whizzes through an evolutionary stage, we're less likely to st- see stars in that evolutionary stage. Yeah. But as humans, we don't know how long we stay in this technologically advanced stage yet. This could no. be the longest... Chunk of our history, mm-hmm. so and, and whereas the Dark Ages was the shortest chunk of our history. Yeah. So, does he take any of that sort of thing into um, account, like how long so, civilizations stay in these? So
0: this this is, is a two page paper, <laughs> um, but <laughs> and kind of he sort of vaguely touches upon it. Like the, it, it's sort of more a thought experiment rather than a a full on exploration of it. But like what you've touched on there on the longevity of different phases is the L term in the Drake equation. So the Drake equation is, depending on who you speak to, either an interesting thoughtless experiment or rubbish. Um, <laughs> I will remain on the fence. So it's just basically multiplying a load of numbers together to give the number of intelligent civilizations of our level and higher that mm-hmm. exist in our galaxy. And it sort of involves multiplying things like the number of stars, the fraction of those that have planets, how many Earth-like planets there are, how many of those, go on to develop life. How many of those become intelligent? And like all of those, no- a lot of those numbers are kind of known. Some of them are vague. And then right at the end, there's a how long these civilizations will hang about for, mm-hmm. which is which just introduces like an error on the order <laughs> of like six or seven magnitudes. Yeah, just the error bars yeah. <laughs> the yeah. So I, I i haven't I haven't repeated this, but um, about six or seven years ago, I trawled through like the NASA and ESA. Numbers and tried to just basically contrive the biggest and smallest numbers I could mm-hmm. from legit sources. <laughs> I for for those listeners, I am currently doing air quotes. But <laughs> yeah, so I I think I managed to get anywhere between. I think my maximum was like 180 million civilizations, and my minimum was like 10 to the minus 46, <laughs> uh, which basically says we're probably alone and probably also shouldn't be here. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I I find this is a concept really quite interesting because it means that you end up having to use things like Breakthrough Starshot and that's our only way of finding these civilizations is to actually physically go there Okay, so, so that's what Breakthrough Starshot is Yeah, says. so Breakthrough Starshot Oh, is this the, is the micro Yeah, so it's the idea of basically getting like a postage stamp mm-hmm. firing a laser at it from Earth like put it, putting the postage stamp in space it's made of not paper. Um, <laughs> so firing, I'm go into yeah. light sales in a bit okay. <laughs> Oh wicked, right. <laughs> Watch this space. But fi- fire a laser at it and throw it off into the direction of everywhere okay. and hope that someone finds them and it finds something interesting.
1: So I suppose my problem with this as well is even if we are assuming that they are more technologically right. advanced than us, does it make sense that we then would have encountered them actually? Because if if they're anything like us do we even want to contact other alien civilizations? Maybe they're so self aware that they're like, oh, maybe we don't want to talk to the other ones because <laughs> they're not very nice. So, or, or maybe they, they decided that it's better to not, even because they don't hmm. know how uh, nice <laughs> the other civilizations would be. So maybe they've decided instead, you know, they've gotten more t- technologically advanced, but they've shut themselves off. Or they've so got on.
2: their own prime directive,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: well, it's, it's looking at, like, this paper that Adam had to edit me fiona and niall talking about oh yeah um (laughs) so uh, we we were discussing sort of alien civilizations a few episodes ago and um Mm -hmm. one of them one of the the stages of life that they kind of defined was you go from like single cell to multicellular and then to small tribes and then you get to the point where you end up with big tribes but you're all still on a planet fighting Mm -hmm. which is kind of where we are so like We as a civilization spend far more time throwing stuff at each other, to the extent where, yeah, I wouldn't trust us with the rest of the universe, universe. (laughs) but if we get to the point where we can stop throwing things at each other, maybe then we can be let off the proverbial naughty step and set out into, into planetary politics. You never know. So we've discussed maybe where some aliens are, and it's that they're stuck on a planet not looking up, but... Let's return to FRBs. Laura, you have something interesting, I hope.
1: So interestingly, now that Abraham Loeb has said this, that maybe they're not technologically advanced, what I'm going to talk about is some of his work on why they are super technologically advanced.
0: Wait, hang on. Is it it the same guy?
1: Yes, it's the same guy. (laughs) Um, So Abraham Loeb is a big wig at Harvard. Yeah. And this is what happens to astronomers when they realize they have all the power and they can do whatever they want. We look into aliens. A lot of his work is really more on the SETI side of things, so if we were going to detect an alien signal, what would it be like? What would be the ultimate frequency that a- an alien would be using, for example? But I'm going to talk about fast radio bursts. So a little bit of background first on fast radio bursts, because it's what I will be looking for very soon once once Meerkat is actually turned on. A fast radio burst is a really short, really bright flash of radio light, so they, they last for a couple of milliseconds, and from the properties of these fast radio bursts, we can tell that they're really far away. So up to 10 to the nine light years away from us. How,
0: how can you tell that from?
1: So um, it's something called dispersion measure. So when light travels through free electrons, so these are, are electrons that aren't attached to uh, another atoms and protons and things, so they're just electrons that are just floating around, they actually slow the light down which sounds a bit strange, but at different frequencies we see this effect to more or less extent. So at a higher frequency, the light arrives earlier, and as we go down lower frequencies, the light arrives later, and this relation is a quadratic. So we know this relation really well, and by working out how many free electrons there are between us and a source, it's a sort of hand-wavy measurement of how much stuff is between us and the source. So this could be because, say, for example, like the Crab Nebula, the Crab Pulsar. So pulsars are great for dispersion measure because they're really also really short flashes of light. So we can only see this effect if it's just a really short burst. Otherwise, it kind of smears out this quadratic and we can't do much with it. So the Crab, for example, is inside the nebula, which is beautiful, but it's also got lots of electrons in it. So some of the the stuff is just really close to the source. But we can still get a general idea if we have this dispersion measure is huge. For example, the first fast radio burst, the amount of electrons that were contributed by our own galaxy was only 15%. So that means that it's really, really far away. The rest of the stuff is from the intergalactic medium, the stuff between galaxies. And we know that there's a lot less stuff (laughs) between galaxies. (laughs) So that means that if this high uh, dispersion measure means even further away. So the, the dispersion measure is a, a really useful tool for us, and it's also a way to tell that something is actually from space instead of just someone opening a microwave door before <laughs> the, the cycle has stopped, which is peritons, which I would recommend looking up because my, my friend Emily Petrov is the one who discovered that those were actually microwave ovens. <laughs> so we know from this dispersion measure it's a really good hint that something is actually from space and not just some signal from Earth. We've seen about 30 of these fast radio bursts. And all of them except one are just single bursts. And no matter how many times we look back at the same spot, we've only seen the one. It just flashes once and then it's gone. And they're really bright and really far away. Except for this one, which is called the repeater, uh, FRB-121102. And it's the only one that we've ever seen repeat. It was first seen and then there were 10 follow up bursts that were seen, and more recently, I think, about another 10 Hmm. um, have been published. So this one fast radio burst repeats, but all the rest of them, no matter how hard we try to look, we have never seen them repeat. So the thing about these fast radio bursts, we know they're really far away, and they're also spread out throughout the sky, so they're all from all different directions. So there's a really bright, really short flash. And when we look at these bursts, the first sort of thought is, is it aliens? Because, of course... (laughs) Why not? And this has a bit of a history as well, this, this is it aliens thing, because when Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell first saw these pulses from pulsars, they were nicknamed LGM or little green men. But that was more of a joke than they actually <laughs> thought that it was aliens. <laughs> so we're sh- as sure as we can be, because scientists will never say they're 100% sure because we're always open to, to new evidence. We're as sure as we can be that these FRBs aren't aliens. But why don't we think they're aliens? Hmm. So what do you guys reckon? you have any ideas on why we think they're not aliens
0: are they just stupidly bright like to the extent (laughs) to the extent where like i don't know you'd have to like throw two stars at each other or
1: yeah basically so (laughs) so there's there's actually quite a few logical reasons that we don't even need science for but (laughs) abraham Loeb, for example he actually has a paper uh, last year and sort of calculated what you would kind of need if you were going to have these fast radio bursts as aliens, like what tech would they need? And he calculated that the region of the emitter, so the, the source, would have to be two times the size of the Earth. So basically we're thinking Death Star, <laughs> twice the size of the Earth that's shooting a laser. And that's not just the Death Star, the actual size of the aperture of the laser is two times the size of the Earth. So it has to be and also crazy amount of energy and you somehow have to not melt your civilization how, as you're doing this.
0: How has how he, he calculated the like the size that's needed? Because like surely that requires really fine localization of the bursts on the sky. I, I, how well localized are the bursts?
1: Well, so the, the repeater is the only one that's been localized because if we have a flash that goes off mm. in say the size, so usually our detectors for these are roughly the size of the moon or a bit bigger. So you see a flash somewhere in the size of the moon and there are, I don't know how many, but a lot of galaxies fit inside the size of the moon. If you think of the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, which I would recommend looking up if you haven't ever before because it's beautiful, there's heaps of galaxies just in this tiny space which is like a dot on the moon. And if you take the moon, there's just heaps of stuff in it, so we don't know where they're coming from. But you don't actually need that, because we know how long these bursts last for. So if you think of a torch, right, hmm. it has quite a wide beam. And the beam, that if you shine it on a wall, it takes up quite a large area. And the the torch itself, the light is, you know, a decent size. But if you take a laser, and it's this tiny point on the wall, and you also note that the, the area where the light is coming from, from the laser, is quite small as well. So it's a sort of similar principle. Okay. How long does this flash last for? How wide is it, I suppose? And that can give you a hint on how, and then use equations and things, and that tells you how wide the emitting region is, and that's how we sort of also, pulsars and things like that, the emitting region is quite small, because Mm -hmm. they also have really short bursts. So you can actually work it out, but it's still huge, and it takes a whole heap of energy, and then you think, but why would an alien be using that?
0: Yeah, like... Death Star. <laughs> De- Death, Death Star. Star. <laughs> like we've seen Star Wars, we know why.
1: It, you're right. It must be Death Star. <laughs> so
2: it's
1: a lot of, a lot of effort
2: for a one-shot thing, right?
0: Well,
1: yeah, or, or even just a few. And where are you getting that energy from? So this, so Abraham Loeb is talking about using a star, basically harnessing the energy from a star, which also is like Star Wars, but that's... <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'm like, sure a, like a
0: Dyson sphere,
1: or...? Yeah, exactly. So the, the, he actually does mention that that you could have a what is it, a Dyson something... Dyson swarm? Yeah, I think it's something yeah. like that. Um Sphere a, for something like this. But, I mean, there's a few ideas of why we would see, even see a signal from aliens, and it could be, say, a transmitter or like a, a beacon for other civilizations, but, again, why would they do that? But well, also... The, these fast radio bursts are what we call wide band. So they cover a wide frequency range and the frequency structure is weird. So they're not all the same frequency structure. So some of them are brighter at one frequency and the next one will be brighter at different frequency. And they've got a really weird shape, I suppose, in the frequency domain. So if I was going to do a transmission or something, why would I make it this weird frequency shape? If I was going to I'd try and just connect to anyone you would think that maybe I'd make it bright at quite a few frequencies rather than some weird blobby shape or I would just make it really narrow band like we do with our mm. radios yeah. here on earth why would I make it wide band that's not really a normal thing if you're trying to contact someone.
2: So yeah for, for set a broadcast that Humanity's always thought about it. It's always some weird frequency so that it's obvious that it's not natural or it's got some weird frequency shape across a... a, a or,
0: of... or there's putting it just straight in the hydrogen 21 to, like the twenty-one centimetre line. If you encode like a, a regular pattern in that... Oh, yeah, okay. Um, it's, yes. yeah. Sorry, have, have <laughs> no, I no, stolen my exactly, No,
5: that's exactly,
1: that's exactly right. Because even if we make it a weird frequency pattern, we kind of make it a pattern mm-hmm. as opposed to just some weird blobby shape yeah, and, and everyone's different. Um, so all of these fast radio bursts, while we do detect them, usually at a similar frequency, because a lot of our telescopes are observe at something called L band, which is one point four gigahertz, and that's because it's uh, good for pulsars. Um, so we usually see them there, but they they all have weird, different frequency shapes, and they're not something that we would consider to be man made, because you would expect some pattern to make it obvious that it's mm-hmm. not natural, or some useful shape not just some random
0: <laughs> like a smiley face <laughs> yeah exactly
1: <laughs> or if we, we were talking about pushing some stamp sized thing out into space using light so this is the the kind of other main idea is something called a light sail so the main problem with sending stuff into space is that you need to carry a lot of fuel just to push yourself around once you're up in space and even to get out in space you need it heap of fuel and then you're even wasting more fuel because to get the fuel into space, you have to have more fuel and it all just gets a bit crazy. So the idea of a light sail is that you have a laser and you point it at this sail and the energy from the light actually pushes the spaceship out. So you need quite a lot of light because light has energy, but it's not massive and and all of this technological stuff. But you can accelerate things up to 60 kilometers per second so it's something that Abraham Loeb has investigated for sending something to Mars, but he discusses mainly interplanetary travel. And do you really need a Death Star <laughs> to travel between planets? And would you you have to make a Death Star just to travel to another planet? But the Death Star can't be on your planet because otherwise the energy just gets crazy. So I, I
0: love that in your world, <laughs> even though it's just used for transportation, it's still called a Death <laughs> yeah, Star.
1: It <laughs> That's well, marketing
0: genius. It is, it
1: is. <laughs> so you need a, a laser two times the size of Earth just so that you can get to another planet in your own system. So you probably have to have more than one because you want to come back and it just all gets a bit crazy. And if you once you've accelerated this thing to 60 kilometres per second, once you get to the other planet, you need to slow it down. So the other planet also needs to have yep. a giant laser <laughs> on it. So
0: Or a big net. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> so it just gets a bit... When you think about the, the reasons, and of course, because we're humans, right? We're not these aliens. They could have some other reason that we have absolutely no idea about. So that is fair enough. But in, in sort of what we philosophize, I suppose, about what aliens could be doing, why would they use a light of this nature? Because mm-hmm. it just seems a bit strange. And also, as these fast radio bursts are spread out everywhere and they're really far away, it would mean that a whole heap of different civilizations created the same technology at different times without talking to each other. Because they're very far away from each other as well. And because they're at different distances from us, they're at different times. Because yeah. the further away we go, the further back in time. Yep. So they, they all created this, this same technology, or very, very similar. Because fast radio bursts, while they're each a little bit different from each other, they have some very similar characteristics. That they all created the same thing at different times in history, without talking to each other, because they're also very far away from each other. So the time it would take to send a message to one other civilization and then receive something back is crazy. Mm -hmm. So even just on that, so I went with the other stuff first, but just this one (laughs) thing, it just seems a little bit, (laughs) a little bit crazy. And also Abraham Loeb worked out that there should be less than 10 to the 4 civilizations in a Milky Way-like galaxy that would create this. But less than 10 to the 4. You're already talking about errors a bit there, Josh. Yeah, um, That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so it does seem a little bit, I guess, like most scientists, if we had some evidence, but probably not aliens, sadly.
0: That's a shame. So,
1: <laughs> so, if,
0: so if it's not aliens, yes. what are they?
1: That is an excellent question. So uh, when they were first discovered, well, when, when the first one was seen, there was a lot of arguments about whether it's even in space at all, but that we're... We're cool on that one now. Um, <laughs> but there are usually a lot more theories than there are observations of these things, though we are getting closer because every time we observe one, we get a little bit more information and even just a little bit more statistical information. Mm. So some of the things, the more crazy things are uh, white holes, reconnecting cosmic strings, but there are also the, the ones that are sort of the top contenders. So we have this problem where we have this one repeating one and the rest of them don't repeat. So does that mean that they all repeat, but we just have only seen this one repeat, or that there are two populations? There are repeating ones and non-repeating ones. So you kind of have to come up with theories that will cover those possibilities. So we have things like merging neutron stars, where when they merge, we kind of think maybe they'll just stick around as a object before they collapse into a black hole. And when they do collapse into a black hole, we'll see some mm-hmm. light come out. Or a giant pulse from a magnetar, where... A, Pulsar is a rotationally powered Neutron star, a magnetar is Powered by its magnetic field, so it's hmm. Magnetically powered.
0: Oh, like a dynamo or
1: something. Yeah, 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 so they can have really Bright super, super Bursts, and so maybe something like That, or a burst from a magnetar that kind of Powers the nebula around it And then light comes out, so there's A lot of different these, theories These
2: would all be objects outside Our own galaxy, or oh, these are objects within our Galaxy that, because of the stuff around Them, makes it look like they are
1: no, so we, we...
2: They definitely have to be extra galactic. We,
1: well, definitely is a bit strong, but... No. <laughs>
2: they are more than likely to be extra Yes, they're okay, more right. than likely but to be extra galaxies. The, that type of object happening in another galaxy somewhere else. Yes, okay, exactly. Upside,
1: but it yeah. could, I mean, just like anything, it could happen in our own galaxy as well. But taking the current rates, we expect about one fast radio burst per 300 years. In,
0: in, Milky Way. in a galaxy. Okay.
1: Yeah, or in a Milky Way-like okay. galaxy. So that means, you know, there's a, a chance... We just won't see it for ages. <laughs> okay, so so, so, we, so we, we
0: haven't seen, we haven't seen something equivalent exactly. on a local scale.
1: So we've never seen anything like it in our own galaxy because it would have to be crazy bright. Yep. Like mm. if it was pointing in our direction, we would definitely see it. <laughs> we would notice. So we don't think we've seen one in the Milky Way, and we're pretty sure. They're outside of our galaxy because to have such a, because uh, I talked about how much stuff there is. To have so much stuff around something in our own galaxy kind of means that would, would, the, would the light even get through the stuff? Because mm. once you get too much of a, of a concentration of, let's say, it's like a cloud. Once it gets too thick, just no light comes through so there are a few theories that kind of take into account that maybe they could be galactic so it's not totally discounted but every time we see a new one and recently so the reason i'm really talking about this is because recently there was a new result about the repeating fast radio burst about the environment and maybe that it's linked to something to do with the black hole because of the polarization of the the burst that we saw so we're getting more information all the time but we don't know
0: fair Okay. So uh, one one last question. Um, so you me- you mentioned the theory that they were merging neutron stars. Mm-hmm. Have any gravitational waves been correlated with an FRB, or like any any link between the two?
1: Not so far. So there was reasonably recently the neutron star-neutron star merger that was detected by gravitational waves, which was amazing. But unluckily, (laughs) no radio telescopes were pointing in that direction. So there's also a lot of discussion about how soon after the merger that we'd actually see the light. So Mm -hmm. there was the gamma ray burst associated with it. But that's usually... When we see these things, you see the shorter wavelengths arrive first, and then the longer wavelengths come a bit afterwards. So there was some pretty good follow-up, but we still just don't really... We weren't pointing in the right direction at the right time, unfortunately. But that's something good about Meerkat is that it has a very big field of view, and it'll just be looking around all the time. So if they do keep seeing these neutron star-neutron star mergers in gravitational waves, Mm -hmm. hopefully we'll be able to say whether or not an FRB happened. Fingers crossed, because that would be really cool.
2: And then going forward, as the SKA <laughs> comes online after, and as the gravitational wave experiments get more advanced, the data set's going to become massive, right? So
1: Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> so, so far, they've only seen one neutron star-neutron yeah. star merger, and I'm not sure what the rates are on that. And we've got to work that out as well. Do the rates of FRBs match these, mm-hmm. these, these theories? So even as they find more of these mergers, we'll be able to say, do the rates actually work or it's just a bit silly because we only see one of those every hundred years but we expect to see 10 to the 4 of these every day <laughs> so that that sort of thing but every time we see something like this we add to even just the statistics and then yeah. we can narrow things down all the time so i think even recently some of the theories that i just mentioned some of them are actually cut out recently mm. because of some some observations okay. this is a field that changes all the time. I get at least one paper notification every day about something new about FRBs. So you've got to really be on your toes
3: to keep up with this stuff.
0: Excellent. So Laura's just been talking about stuff that we don't know where it is in the sky, but there are things that we can predict. And so here's Ian Morrison with this month's Northern Night Sky.
7: The night sky for February 2018. Well, to be frank, we haven't had all that many clear nights this winter. I hope it's a bit better this February. But if it is, after sunset, looking a little bit to the west of south, we have that wonderful skyscape. Orion the Hunter, Taurus the Bull, Gemini the Heavenly Twins, and Canis Major with Sirius below. So taking the three stars of Orion's belt, Down to the left you come to Sirius, the brightest star in the northern hemisphere. Up to the right you come to Aldebaran, a red giant star, which lies between us and the Hyades cluster. And beyond the Hyades is that beautiful open cluster, the Pleiades. High above is the yellowish star Capella in the constellation of Auriga. The Milky Way passes through Auriga And there's some very nice open clusters to see with binoculars or a small telescope. Over to the east of south, there's a fairly open area of sky. It has the constellation of Cancer. No really bright stars, but a very nice little open cluster called M44, the beehive cluster, or sometimes called Pricepe. And then rising over to the east, is that nice constellation of Leo the Lion. I think it's always a bit like the lions in Trafalgar Square on their haunches. Becoming fairly high overhead is the constellation of Ursa Major, with, of course, the major asterism, the plough. The right-hand stars, Dupe and Merak, point towards Polaris, the pole star, very close to the North Celestial Pole. Well, what about the planets this month? Well, Jupiter, it rises around 2 a.m. at the beginning of the month and just before midnight by month's end. Initially, it has a 36 arc-second disk shining at magnitude minus 2. But as the month progresses, its apparent diameter increases to 39 arc-seconds and it brightens to magnitude minus 2.2. Jupiter will transit that's due south, before dawn, and so will enable the giant planet to be seen with the equatorial bands, sometimes the great, but reducing in size, red spot, and up to four of its Galilean moons visible in a small telescope. Sadly, Jupiter, which lies in Libra this month, is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of about 20 degrees when crossing the meridian. Atmospheric dispersion will thus hinder our view, and it might be worth considering purchasing the ZWO atmospheric dispersion corrector, costing a bit over £100, to counteract its effects. Well, Saturn is now at the start of its new apparition, rises at around 5am at the start of the month, and just after 3am at its end. With an angular size of 15.5 arc seconds, it climbs higher before dawn and becomes easier to spot as the month progresses. Its brightness remains at about plus 0.6 magnitudes. The rings were at their widest a few months ago and still, at 26 degrees to the line of sight, well open. Saturn, lying in Sagittarius, is just 3 degrees above the topmost star of the teapot, Sadly, even when at opposition later this year, it will only reach an elevation of just over 15 degrees above the horizon as it crosses the meridian. And again, like Jupiter, an atmospheric dispersion corrector could be a very good device to help counteract the effects of the atmosphere, particularly if you're doing some astrophotography. Now, Mercury... Mercury passes through superior conjunction, that's between us and the Sun, on the 17th of February, so will be lost in the Sun's glare until the very end of the month, when it might just be glimpsed after sunset, with its 5 arc-second disk having an unusually bright magnitude of minus 1.5. You may need to use binoculars, but please do not use them to search for Mercury until the Sun has set. Well, Mars starts the month moving quickly eastwards in Scorpius, close to Beta Scorpii, but it moves into Ophiuchus on the 8th of the month. Now, a morning object at the start of its new apparition, it rises four hours or so earlier than the sun. During the month, Mars has a magnitude which increases from plus 1.2 to plus 0.8, and an angular size. 5.6 increasing to 6.6 arcseconds. So you can't really expect to see any details on its, I call it salmon pink surface. Again, it's very low. It will only reach an elevation of about 14 degrees before dawn at the start of the month and just 12 degrees by month's end. Well, Venus pass through superior conjunction, which is on the far side of the Sun, on January the 9th. And so, at the beginning of February, will be lost in the Sun's glare, setting less than half an hour after the Sun. However, by month's end, shining with a magnitude of minus 3.9, it will set around an hour after the Sun, and its 10 arc-second disk should be easy to spot 30 minutes or so after sunset. However, you will need a low western horizon as it will then only have an elevation of five degrees some way to the south of west. Well, we don't have that many highlights this month, to be honest, but let's just run through them. Before dawn on February the 8th, a waning moon lies close to Jupiter in fact, Mars is quite close too. So if it's clear on the 8th, you can see a waning moon between full moon and last quarter close to, to Jupiter. Down to the left of the pair is Mars, which lies above Antares in Scorpius, both looking a sort of a salmon pink red. If it's clear on the 9th of February for dawn, looking to the south, southeast, Mars at magnitude plus one will be seen to the lower right of a waning crescent moon. Now, on February the 17th after sunset, a very tough observing challenge. Looking west-southwest after sunset on the 17th, and given a very low western horizon, one might be able to spot Venus at the start of its new evening apparition. A very thin crescent moon, just two days after new, will be seen up to its left, and you might be able to spot Earth shine. Again, binoculars may well be needed, but please do not use them before the sun has set. On the evenings of the 23rd and 24th of February, the moon lies in that beautiful skyscape I mentioned before the moon coming towards first quarter will pass through Taurus and Orion. On the 23rd, it lies close to Aldebaran, which is a red giant star lying between us and the Hyades cluster. And then a day later, on the 24th, it will lie above Orion. I usually give an object or more on the moon to look out for. I quite like looking at the moon, actually, and imaging it. On the nights of the 6th and 22nd of February, the Hygienus Rill lies close to the Terminator. For some time, a debate raged as to whether the craters on the Moon were caused by impacts or volcanic activity. We now know that virtually all were caused by impact, but it is thought that the Hygienus crater that lies at the centre of the Hygienus Rill may well be volcanic in origin. It is an 11 kilometer wide rimless pit, in contrast to impact craters, which have raised rims. And its close association with the rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar events. It can be quite easily seen to be surrounded by dark material. It is thought that an explosive release of dust and gas created a vacant space below so the overlying surface collapse into it, so forming the crater. Well, let's hope we do get some decent clear nights to have a last lovely views of that beautiful skyscape around the constellation of Orion.
1: And let's head down under from where I come from and we'll listen here to Claire Bretherton tell us about the night sky when you're upside down.
4: Cura and welcome to the February Jodcast from Space Place at Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. The month begins with a total lunar eclipse when the Moon moves completely into the Earth's shadow. Whilst the penumbral phase starts shortly before midnight on the night of January the 31st, totality begins at 1.51am on the morning of the 1st of February and lasts until shortly after 3am. Unlike a solar eclipse, which is only visible from a very specific path along the Earth's surface, A lunar eclipse is visible from anywhere on the night side of the planet. Whilst the Earth blocks all direct light from the Sun, some light passes through the Earth's atmosphere and is bent or refracted towards the surface of the Moon. Light with shorter wavelengths towards the blue end of the spectrum is scattered more strongly, so only the redder light gets through, giving the eclipsed Moon a telltale reddish glow. Whilst New Zealand won't see it, some parts of the southern hemisphere will also experience a partial solar eclipse this month on the morning of the 16th NZ time. From parts of Chile and Argentina, the moon will cover some 25% of the sun's disk, whilst from Antarctica, around 49% will be covered. Orion is now high in the north after dark, with Sirius or Takarua, the brightest star in our nighttime sky, even higher. Below and to the right, and forming a triangle with Sirius and Betelgeuse, is Procyon, the brighter of the two main stars that form the constellation of Canis Minor, Orion's small hunting dog. Procyon is the eighth brightest star in the nighttime sky, and like Sirius, at nine light years distant, is one of our sun's nearest neighbors, at just eleven light years away. Also, like Sirius, it is in fact a binary system, with a 1.5 solar mass primary and a faint white dwarf companion. Just over a third of the way between Sirius and Procyon in the constellation of Monoceros is M50, a pretty heart-shaped open cluster of stars visible in binoculars. Around a third of the way from Betelgeuse to Procyon is NGC 2244, a rectangular cluster of stars that is embedded in a faint nebula called the Rosette. Whilst the cluster is visible in binoculars and small telescopes, the nebula is more of a challenge and is best seen in long-exposure photographs. Below Canis Minor sits another pair of stars, Custer and Pollux, marking the heads of Gemini, the twins. Pollux, the higher and brighter of the two stars, is the 17th brightest in our night sky. It is about 35 light-years away from us, whilst Castor is in fact a sextuple star system located 52 light-years from Earth. Nearby to Ita Geminorum, at the foot of the twin of Castor, is the open star cluster M35, covering an area almost the size of the full moon. Under good conditions, it can be seen with the unaided eye as a hazy star but binoculars or a wide-field telescope will reveal more detail and are the best ways to view this lovely cluster. Next to Gemini is the faint zodiac constellation of Cancer, the crab. At the centre of Cancer is a lovely open cluster of stars known as M44, tricepi, the manger, or the beehive. At magnitude 3.7, the cluster is visible to the naked eye as a hazy nebula and has been known since ancient times. It was one of the first objects Galileo studied when he turned his telescope to the skies in 1609. Galileo was able to pick out around 40 stars, but today we know that Pricepi contains over 1,000 individual members, with a combined mass of between 500 and 600 times that of the Sun. As one of the closest open star clusters to our solar system, M44 is a great target for binoculars or small telescopes which will easily reveal a number of individual stars within it. Higher and to the east of Canis Major is Puppis, representing the poop deck of the great ship Argo, which we explored last month. Inside Puppis are two lesser-known Messier objects, M46 and M47. Messier 46, also known as NGC 2437, is a rich open cluster at a distance of about 5,500 light-years away. It is estimated to contain around 500 stars, of which around 150 are of magnitude 10 to 13. Estimated to be only 300 million years old, this is a young cluster and a lovely sight in binoculars or a small telescope. Astronomer John Herschel described it in his general catalogue of nebulae and clusters of stars as remarkable cluster, very bright, very rich, very large, involving a planetary nebula. This planetary nebula, located near the cluster's northern edge, is NGC 2438. A planetary nebula is formed when a low or intermediate mass star comes to the end of its life, ejecting its outer layers into space as a glowing shell of ionised gas. Whilst NGC 2438 appears to lie within the cluster, it is probably just a chance line-of-sight effect, as the radial velocities are quite different. NGC 2438 is estimated to lie somewhat closer than M46 at around 2,900 light-years away. Located around one degree west is another open cluster M47. The two fit easily within one binocular field of view and are often referred to as sisters. Messier 47 or NGC 2422 has actually been discovered several times. The first was sometime before 1654 by Giovanni Battista Hodierna and then independently by Charles Messier on February the 19th, 1771. William Herschel also independently rediscovered it on February the 4th, 1785, and it was included as GC 1594 in John Herschel's General Catalogue of Nebulae and Clusters of Stars, the precursor to Dreyer's New General Catalogue in 1864. Due to a sign error by Messier, the cluster was considered a lost Messier object for many years, as no cluster could be found at the position of Messier's original coordinates. It wasn't until 1959 that Canadian astronomer T.F. Morris identified that the cluster was in fact NGC 2422, and realised Messier's mistake. M47 lies at a distance of around 1,600 light-years from Earth, with an estimated age of about 78 million years. It is described as a coarse, bright cluster containing around 50 stars, scattered over an area around the same size as the full moon in the sky. It is bright enough to be glimpsed with the naked eye under good observing conditions, but best viewed with binoculars or a small telescope. There are a couple of other excellent binocular targets in Puppis, including open cluster NGC 2477, a wonderful rich cluster of over 300 stars described by American astronomer Robert Burnham as probably the finest of the galactic clusters in Puppis, along with its neighbour NGC 2451, both located close to the second magnitude star Zeta Puppis. Also known as Naos, this blue supergiant is one of the hottest, most luminous stars visible to the naked eye. It has a bolometric or total luminosity of at least 500,000 times that of the Sun. But with most of its radiation emitted in the ultraviolet, it is visually around 10,000 times brighter. It is also one of the closest stars of its kind to our Sun, at a distance of around 1,080 light years. Our evening skies are still bereft of bright planets. Jupiter is the first to rise at around 1am at the start of the month. Mars follows shortly afterwards, and the two are joined by Saturn around 3.30am. You may spot Mercury briefly at the start of February, rising in the dawn twilight around an hour before the Sun, but it will soon disappear from view as it heads back towards the Sun and into the twilight. By month's end, Jupiter has moved into our evening skies, rising at 11pm, Mars around 12.30am, and Saturn by 2am, making a diagonal line down the eastern morning sky. After eight years at Space Place at Carter Observatory, and being involved in the JODcast for almost as long, I'm moving on to a new role in February, and so sadly this will be my last Southern Skies section. It's been a great pleasure bringing you a little taste of our wonderful New Zealand stars over the past few years and some of the amazing stories within them. I wish you clear skies and all the very best from the future. So farewell from me, Claire Bretherton, and the team here at Space Place at Carter Observatory.
2: Thanks
0: for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. We've had a Christmas card from Vincent, who says, To the Jodcast team, wishing you all a great Christmas and all the best for 2018. Thank you for another year of excellent, informative, engaging and enjoyable podcasts. Jod on, Vincent. Thank you very much. That's going up on our wall. The ball's um, looking nice and full as well. Yeah, we've got loads. It's fantastic. We should probably put a picture up, actually. Yeah, yes. Yeah, there we go. Right, we, we're going to actually use some of our social media. <laughs> um, so we've got uh, actually
2: a lot of feedback uh, this yep. this episode. So go, Adam. So yeah, we'd like to say thank you to Howard Leverenz and Philip Lariche for letting us know that the RSS feed was broken. So that meant that you guys got no December Extra or January show. So we're sorry about that. We've now diagnosed the problem. I can't remember what it was, but it was something
0: something I just repeatedly had to type in the same command. And it's just just some uh, repeating
2: work. And then uh, so we will make sure that doesn't happen in future to the best of our capabilities. But thank you for letting us know.
1: So we also got an email, I think it was, from Virgil Anderson, who had a question about our content and was wondering who he could speak about any questions that he has. And this is a really great question and he has sort of the right idea, but you can go onto our general feedback form on the website, or if you want to ask about astronomy with an astronomical question, it can go to the AAA section further down on the website. Ask
0: an astronomer.
1: So uh, both of these are available at jodcast.net forward slash contact.
0: Okay, and then on Facebook, Anne Stone has said thank you to Professor Tim O'Brien for his detailed answer to the question on stellar motion in globular clusters from our December Extra episode. It does add to the
2: mystery of the formation of these beautiful objects. Many thanks and Merry Christmas to all. So we've had another message on Facebook from Teresa Arispe. I hope I pronounced that right. Sorry, if not, who was wondering why our website was down and hoping that everything was okay. So the website was down because we had the half-decadal electricity testing within the building so everything had to be shut down for a few days it was great we all just went home yeah it was really good uh, everywhere was really quiet there were no computers buzzing and and uh yeah we got like days off <laughs> so uh yeah no that 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 was planned but we didn't know that it was planned until basically it was about to happen so we also didn't realize it would take the website down no yes that's true <laughs> thank you for letting us know and uh, we are now back
1: Okay, so Mike Williams, also on Facebook. Thanks, Mike, for this message, because now I have to pronounce a really hard word. Is Jodrell Bank going to be joining in with the seti u Thanks, Mike. Listening exercise. So this is something that happened on the 12th of December last year, but I don't think we were involved with that, but it was a really cool big SETI effort.
0: Yeah, I think they were making an attempt to see if it was a spaceship. It isn't. It's a rock.
2: It's a long rock. It's a long rock. Long it's a long rock.
0: cigar-shaped rock. From with, outside of from, the solar system? Oh, yeah, it's incredibly exciting for many yeah. reasons, but it's not a spaceship.
2: i was just wondering, was, was the level on, under maintenance at that point? Oh, the, level's oh, always a, the level is always
6: under <laughs> no, maintenance. No, it
1: wasn't, because it had been observing this really cool peri-astron event. Okay. There was a pulsar coming into peri-astron with a giant star I and mean, we we're going to see i don't think it's anything about it it's published yet but to see what happens as the pulsar goes into the dust and stuff around the star because oh, cool. right. it was getting clo- really really close to a star at periastron was
0: useful having a radio astronomer actually on the show isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so it was definitely level was it was back up by then but i just don't think we were part of this seti effort
0: yeah, okay. So thank you very much, everyone, for the feedback. If you want to get in touch yourself, you can do so via the website at jodcast.net, On Twitter at twitter.com slash On
1: Facebook at facebook.com slash
0: On YouTube, if anyone still uses that, and I don't think we've actually posted a video for five years or something, but on youtube.com
2: slash On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash
1: and, of course, we love getting Christmas cards and things, so don't forget that you can send us actual snail mail. And the address is on the website, because apparently it's really long.
0: Okay, that's it for the show. Thanks to Tom Scrag for the interview. The editors were Niall McCallum, Joseph Quofe, and Tom Scrag. The producer was Jake Morgan. Until next time, jod on! <laughs>